0: Join the guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting MaxLawEvents.com.
1: Welcome to the podcast edition of Maximum Growth Live, the number one program for lawyers who want to grow their practices. Each week, our hosts, Seth Price and Jay Ruane tackle the fundamental questions about how to grow the profit and profitability of your law firm. To watch the program live, submit your questions and hear the latest episode. Tune in every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern on Facebook for our live show. Maximum Growth Live is a production of Maximum Lawyer Media.
2: Hello, hello, and welcome to another edition of Maximum Growth Live. I'm your host, Jay Ruane, CEO of FirmFlex Social Media Marketing for Lawyers, as well as Ruane Attorneys, a civil rights and criminal defense firm in Connecticut. And joining me, as always, down there in the sun. See, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck here in the winter wonderland of the Northeast. My leaf blower problem has now turned into a snow blower problem. But that guy down there, Seth, is hanging out. Uh, you're either in San Diego, Spokane, Syracuse, uh, where are you,
3: think, where are you? Think of me as like Henry Hill. We just picked up, filled up the minivan, and don't know any of our neighbors. Nobody knows we're here. We're just
2: sort of zooming from warmth. So let me ask you, Henry Hill's main complaint at the end was egg noodles and ketchup was, the, was, was pasta and sauce. For you and your tribe, it's bagels. How are the bagels down there?
3: You know, ironically, I can't speak to bagels as much, but deli. This is like the Mecca because New York has gotten crazy. As you know, New York, good deli in New York, crazy expensive. South oh, yeah. Florida is like this Mecca of reasonably priced, really good deli. It's <laughs> got nothing. So, uh, you know, that, that is the one thing. But, yes, we don't have New York pizza or bagels. In fact, I just got a uh, gold belly delivery from Essa Bagel, which I grew up across the street from in New York.
2: Oh, so. very nice. Very nice. Yeah. I'm actually thinking about giving gold belly out as a, as a Christmas present because everyone's stuck at home. You can't really do experiences with people, but it'd be, it's a cool thing that I can give, uh, to my father as, as here, order something cool that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get now, uh, and, and have a nice, have a nice, uh, a meal out of it. My, my,
3: my two cents is most of the gold belly experiences are such a premium. That it's like if somebody knew what you paid for it, they'd be like, really? Oh, absolutely. So, but I, I feel like the, the direct delivery from cats is much better bang for your buck.
2: Well, you can send a salami to your boy in the army. Exactly. I, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, I, you know, and I know our, our viewers there probably don't want to hear this, but I have spent many, many, many drunken nights in Katz's wolfing down pastrami. Uh, it's really, I um, mean, because back then, you know, in my younger days, it was all the clubs around there, Arlene's Groceries, Mercury Lounge, uh, you know, I was going to see live bands down there in my 20s and 30s, and I love spending time at Katz's. Uh, it is it is definitely the way to go. But, okay, so it's Thursday. We got another show. Let's talk a few things. But I want to prep us for next Tuesday because, you know, our Tuesday shows are really getting interesting as we really sort of get down and deep into certain topics. And one of the topics I want to talk to you about next Tuesday, and so I want to tease it now uh, and get people interested in listening to that Tuesday show, is it's the end of the year, right? It's going to be, you know, December 20th uh, or or 19th uh, when we do that show or 21st. I don't know the dates. I'm not good with calendars. And anyway, So on Tuesday, I want to talk a little bit about how do you wrap up your year? You know, it's it's so much easier for some companies to wrap up a year. And for us, you know, we have cases we open in December that will last till March or even longer. Um, You know, so it's it's there's no hard and fast. We stop selling at a certain point. Uh, And so you're always sort of in this um, flow. Uh, But you, you but you have to sort of memorialize it somehow. So I want to talk a little bit about ending the year and setting concrete goals that you can achieve uh, in the next year. Uh, we're already talking about our websites that we want to improve and that type of thing. So uh, be ready for that. But, but do you have any tips that you can give or any ideas where it comes to wrapping up a year?
3: Well, you know, I, I, something that's a little outside the box. I mean, there are fundamentals and, and we, we, we'll talk about that more in depth on Tuesday. But one of the things that I, it's from a sort of bigger picture point of view, and you alluded to it a little bit, is there are certain things that are always coming, particularly in the contingency fee space. You know, if somebody has trust in estates and you have like probate matters that haven't quite paid yet, but you've done. And there are all these different things and how you look at things to get an accurate snapshot of where you are in health of firm. I think it's one of those things that you, unless you're looking at it from multiple different angles, you can make things seem better or worse, depending on which of those angles you're looking at. And that, you know, it's been a humbling year with COVID. There's stuff that I thought would be better that wasn't. There's stuff that I thought would be worse that it was was better than, you know. So there's been a tale of multiple cities. And I feel that unless you have, you know, these different perspectives of how much cash is going into escrow, for example, in your world versus how much are you pulling out? And because at the end of the day, it's what are you what do you what have you? taken out of escrow that you have earned is what you care about. At the same time, the health of your firm is determined based on the stuff going in, assuming that you're not giving tons of refunds. So there's that balancing act of how do you slice the information to get a clear and accurate picture of the health of the firm.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and by next Tuesday we really will know where we stand with maybe another round of PPP. What you know, what the final bills looking like coming out, uh, and I think that's going to be important because you know the interesting thing for some firms, you know, and if you have an LLC or a pass-through organization, a lot of people sort of spend down in December. Uh to, you know, to, to get money off the books. They'll prepay things and that type of thing. We do we do that
3: every year. Yeah, we, you know. Well, this weeks. year
2: a lot of people don't have money to spend down, but so then we,
3: we, we, we do not need to.
2: <laughs> That's true. Right. <laughs> right.
3: So I mean if you don't have the money to spend down, theoretically that means that you're you know, you're again and I think that this is the elephant in the room, which is not getting as much press as I would imagine, is the taxability of the PPP money, because that's going to be a big, big swing for people that they may not be counting on. Uh, you know, we talked a lot of, a little bit back, you know, in in, in April, but. But frankly, the idea that the intent of the law was that you would this would not be a taxable event. But as of right now, it is. And that's a big, big swing for some people.
2: Yeah, I actually, you know, in my in my quarterlies, I actually paid more this year thinking that I'm I'm either going to get a refund or I'm not going to get hit as hard, uh, because of the way that the tax stuff was set out there. I I just, you know, it's, it's something to be concerned about. Cause you know, I guess theoretically you get on a payment plan with the IRS, uh, and, and deal with it then, but nobody wants to be in that situation.
3: Right. Obviously you don't want to be there, but I think that it is one of those things that conceptually you spent the money on payroll, which is normally a deductible expense. And all of a sudden, again, it's the, thankfully you'll have profit. Let's right. say you would have broken even but for PPP, but that then becomes that delta that you receive becomes taxable income the way the law is right now. And I, I think that the, the, I am waiting for the the small business outcry to come. Usually that's what pushes Congress. But at some point, maybe it's going to be closer to April. People are like, oh, my God, I have a massive bill that I don't have cash to pay. I, I think this is going to be. And look, the easy thing for Congress to always do is, you know, wave it you know or or change or change and there's some people fighting even as it is saying that this was the intent of the law and that the irs should rule should see it that way um but right now it is i think on the wrong side of the bubble and that people are going to be pretty uh you know it's going to be a big sting for a lot of people
2: yeah i I definitely agree and it's something that as you enter the last part of the year it's just something you got to be aware of right and it's and that's important thing because if you get hamstrung halfway through or a quarter way through a year, you know, 2021, this could really impact your growth potential. If all of a sudden you're, hemorrhaging money going out to pay this debt that doesn't get, uh, you know, taken care of, um, it's going to impact your ability to grow your firm. And that's really something that we just want to keep people into looking out for making sure that, uh, you know, your, your plans for the next year. And, you know, we've been sitting around in the office, talking to my marketing team, really get an eye of things that we can do to sort of grow next year. You know, the license stuff that we talked, that we talked about back in August and September is really starting to take off here in state, getting a lot of leads coming in from that, uh, so we're happy about adding that, you know, product line, so to speak. Uh, so we're, we're, I think we're in a good shape. Uh, and I think if you make it through this winter, uh, you're going to be able to really sort of explode uh, in, into the next five years and, and really do well. Because, you know, I, I've talked to some lawyers uh, up here and they are not doing well right now, um, and uh, I think, you know, the people that are on this on this conference, on this call, that are watching this, um, they're the kind of people that are actually making moves, and, and uh, they're going to be in good space. But talking about making moves, I want to bring up uh, your interview, because you're going to do an interview today, and it's not something that's going to be live, like the show is live, it's something that you pre-recorded, because you got somebody um, who is sort of a, a, a legend, in the field of digital marketing but not related necessarily to legal marketing um and so talk to a little bit about who you're going to be interviewing coming up because i, I think it's important for our, our viewers to understand who you got and how you got them
3: so ran fishkin is uh sort of is he's a legend he created um seo maz that later became maz which was the beacon for many people who geeked out at seo of how to read the Google tea leaf re- leaves that they were laying out there in early days. They're much more transparent today, not perfect, but better than it used to be. But it used to be they give you hints. and. Through his uh, through his software and then his videos, these um, these Whiteboard Fridays, he was the person who that helped us break it down. So when I had that epiphany 10, 12 years ago that, hey, I'm not going to hang out at legal conferences only, I'm going to go to where the people are talking about how this stuff is done, the inner workings, flew out to Vegas and started going to these SEO conferences and met people like Rand, uh, and then basically use them as sort of that barometer of what, what's where to spend your time. You know, if, you know, the time is a finite resource and he was very valuable both through the software he had and through his, his outward, uh, through his videos of helping myself and others navigate what, where to allocate resources, what made sense and what didn't. So this came from a, a cold email and, uh, just shows you that, uh, the, the, the cold call still works. And, uh, you know, I looked at my calendar one day and th- there he was. So we, we got a, a, a awesome. great conversation. And I think the, the, You know, the first part where we're geeking about geeking out about SEO and and how that's evolved is great. But the second half where we talk about and we talk about what happened to him, he took on um, he took on a venture partner and it it was not as swimming as you would think for somebody who's a rock star in the industry that you assume would be retired on a beach right now. Things didn't go as as planned. So I think a lesson learned from the business side uh, on the second half. I'm curious to see what you think once uh, once we roll it.
2: Yeah, yeah. So here's what we're gonna do, folks. We're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna, and when we come back, it'll be Seth's interview with Rand Fishkin. And I gotta tell you, uh, if you Google his name, uh, you're you're gonna. I mean, there's just tons of stuff about him. He's spoken on stages all across the world. If you want to really understand SEO, go back to his Whiteboard Friday stuff and just watch those videos. He actually inspired us at our firm years ago with the Whiteboard stuff to do Whiteboard Friday types videos. For our clientele to sort of explain things, you know, how DUIs get prosecuted, how that the feels so bright, stuff that I needed to explain to people. We actually started using that in house in our sales process back. Years ago when we were doing in-office consultations, now everything's done over the phone. So it's really sort of, uh, he was a trendsetter uh, and, and as an educator, and I think that's one of the things that's important is that he gave away a ton of knowledge, man. He was just putting it out there, and his business was growing because of it. Uh, and so when you are the Johnny Appleseed, when you give away knowledge, uh, you can actually get so much more in return. So why don't we take a quick break? When we come back, we'll have Seth's interview with Rand, uh, and so stay tuned It's a great interview. Can't be missed. We'll be right back with the interview.
4: The lawyers who will succeed in the next decade are the ones who are focusing on building their brands where people meet. And there is no place better to build your brand than on social media. With the FirmFlex DIY social media plan, hundreds of lawyers like you are using social media to build their brand and become the one lawyer in their community that people know, like, and trust. By spending even just five minutes a day on social media marketing, you can engage with hundreds or thousands of people in your local community who will need your services. By cultivating a network of followers, you build a book of business that you can market to the next decade and beyond. If you are looking for a solution to help you jumpstart your social media marketing, look no further than the DIY plan at GetFirmFlex.com. The DIY was created by a small firm lawyer for people just like you helping you connect with local people online and build your brand and engage people in the topics they want to talk about. All for under $100 a month. To find out more, visit GetFirmFlex.com. In this world today, if you want to grow your business, you want to grow your firm, you want to take on more cases and make a bigger impact, you have to have a digital blueprint. Statistically, throughout the time that we've been working with Blue Shark Digital, our law firm, the Atlanta Divorce Law Group, grew over 1,400%.
2: Seth and his team have years of experience in this area. Blue Shark is truly a part of the firm, so I don't consider Blue Shark any different than the employees in my office.
3: Welcome, welcome, everybody. We are honored and humbled to have Rand Fishkin here, an icon in the SEO space. Welcome, Rand.
5: Thanks for having me, Seth.
3: You know, uh, you know, for somebody who who built his law firm and then digital agency, listening to Whiteboard Fridays and you know SEO Moz and then Moz, uh, you know, it, it, reading reading your books, uh, you know, you you have sort of been at the epicenter of all things SEO. And I'd love for our listeners just to hear, you know, you've, you've you've pivoted beyond Moz, but talk to us about that journey and some of the highlights along the way.
5: Hmm. Sure. Yeah. So I, I obviously got into the SEO field um, relatively early. I don't think right at the beginning. Uh, the first folks were probably in there 95, 96. And I, I joined around 2000, 2001. Um, and my, you know, my experience was basically entering a field that was very secretive, uh, where consultants and agencies, to the extent that they even existed, um, believed that their secret sauce was their knowledge. And so they kept that very close to the vest. Google, uh, Microsoft, Ask Jeeves, you know, AltaVista, Yahoo, all the, all the search engines at the time that I entered the space were competing very heavily. And I believe that they thought they should be incredibly secretive for, for competitive reasons. And so this, um, you know, the field of SEO today in 2020, there is a lot more transparency. There's a lot more information. There's a ton of SEO software companies like Moz who basically provide information about how to do SEO for free. Uh, There's, there's tons and tons of people who earn their living by providing free education, knowledge, resources, testing, experiments, all this wonderful stuff that makes the field so rich. Almost none of that existed 19 years ago when I started. Um, And so Moz was really one of the first places, uh, uh, aside from a a couple other blogs, maybe Aaron Wall's SEO book is one of the better known ones, where you could go and every day read information about how SEO really worked. And and Seth, it sounds like you did uh, pretty early on.
3: No, I mean that that was it. There was I would go to legal conferences and you get spoon fed by people that may or may not have known what they were doing. And st- oh, yeah. instead I got to Vegas and found people like yourself who were, you know, basically showing you what was going on and if you did this, this would happen.
5: Vegas. Oh, that must have been the the PubCon conference. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I remember that back in the day. Oof. Man, I was um Yeah, Las Vegas is one of my least favorite destinations.
3: (laughs) Um, And then, you know, of course, uh, your Seattle uh, conferences became, you didn't have to travel. You
5: just just walk out the door and speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Seattle um, is beautiful for about six days in the summer. And if you can time it just right, (laughs) you can get a really lovely, uh, lovely event going. I I say that, but even today in December, we're having having a surprisingly beautiful early December. So maybe I shouldn't complain. I'll bring back the rain.
3: So, you know, you, as, as you built this and you started to basically help people understand what was going on, broke it down. And at the same time, one of the things that I, I know was going on is Google um, through Matt Cutts and through their, their messaging would sort of give you droplets of information. And I felt that you were like one of the one voices of sanity because as an SEO or as a business owner where you're trying to make decisions as to how to allocate resources, you very often are told one thing yeah, and whether or not that's in your best interest may or may not be the case. And I'd love to just get your thoughts because that that cat and mouse game was one that I think really brought uh, SEO Moz back in the day to prominence in the sense that you were looking for direction and how to read the tea leaves that were being le- left out there.
5: Yeah, so I think look early in my tenure, I felt that I felt that my ethics and um, business shared a lot of goals with Google's. And so, you know, I, I had a, a reasonably close relationship with a lot of people at Google um, and I don't know about a lot, maybe maybe a, a half a dozen, a dozen, something like that. But, um, you know, th- there was uh, discussions about, you know, I, I went to their campus and, and delivered some talks for them. And I, um, you know, occasionally would email with folks there and that sort of thing. I, I made Moz a place that was very... Back in the old days of SEO, you sort of had this uh, spectrum of white hat and black hat, which largely doesn't exist today all that much. But, you know, in the early years of SEO, it was very much, you know, manipulative links and manipulative tactics versus, you know, what were considered white hat tactics, sort of outreach and press and PR, almost all the things that fall into SEO today, doing technical things, markup things, creating good content, all that kind of stuff. Uh, And... You know, basically my position was I wanted to encourage more of that good white hat stuff. I thought that was the way the industry should go. I felt that SEO, well, SEO at the time, I don't know if you remember, Seth, but extremely disrespected. It was treated worse than any used car salesman. Uh, you know, If you talk to someone who worked in software engineering or web design and development or any other field of marketing, SEO was viewed as You know, not the Wild West, not the new kids, but the evil, dark, terrible people who manipulate and spam and hurt you. And and to be fair, there was a large,
3: and to be fair, there was an entire half of the industry that that was based on until Google shut it down.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think that I think two things really happened, right? As businesses became more serious about SEO, as more of them started to invest, a lot of those tactics didn't work as well because you couldn't manipulate your way past the algorithmic signals of the the actually, you know, big brands who are willing to make the investment. So there was less opportunity, certainly. Google themselves got better and better over time. So did Bing at well at the time MSN search, right? Uh, they got better and better at filtering out spam, at recognizing spam techniques and manipulation. But during this period, I I would say during that period, I was very much on Google's side. And then around, I don't know, 2009, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there, I started noticing more and more that while the industry was maturing and getting better, and a lot of these uh, folks were upgrading their practices, tons of agencies like yourself, right, were coming along who were really helping people do this type of stuff. Google continued to be somewhere between cagey and misleading along all these different vectors of information about how their search engine worked. And I I found that very frustrating. You know, I thought as, as you, Google, are making progress, the way to earn people's trust and respect is to be transparent, to be authentic, to tell not just the truth, but as much of the whole truth as you possibly can. And when you can't speak the whole truth, just say so. Right? It, in my opinion, it's totally fine to be a, a representative for Google and to be asked a question on stage or on Twitter or over email or whatever, whatever it is in some forum and to say, I'm sorry, we don't disclose that information. I, and they never say that. Instead, they come up with some malarkey bullcrap. And frankly, you know, because so many people in the search engine optimization world try to read the tea leaves, as you put it, there's just a huge industry of... Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who every little comment made by someone who works at Google is interpreted and interpreted and interpreted. And that, that frustrates the hell out of me, especially when you see things like, you know, last summer, for example, uh, Congress um, uh, interviewed the, the, the tech right. CEOs, right? right? Sundar Pichai from Google, for, for example, was, you know, was, he was giving testimony. And as part of that testimony, David Cicciolini, the senator from uh, Rhode Island, who I think is leading the, the Committee on Antitrust for the Senate, you know, he, he he subpoenaed a bunch of information from Google. He said, hey, you need to provide all these documents, right? So his, his team does that. And sure enough, in the trove of documents, there's all this information, right? all these emails between executives at Google about how things are working. And you go and look at those and there's just example after example. I sent a Twitter thread, I don't remember sometime earlier this year about it that was just like, oh, look at look at all these, you know 15, 20 different examples, and I didn't even read through the documents all that carefully, of things that were clearly in Google's internal documents that conflicted with things that they said publicly.
3: And that's so, sort of, that's where I was coming, my next set of questions for you is exactly that. What were some of those ones when you reflect back? Because that was always the, the pull and tug between what you're being told and they're sort of manipulating an industry versus you're, look, you had better access than just about anybody. Were there times where were like, hey, this is nonsense, but if they're
5: saying it, I have to give it some credence? Um, let's see, I, I would say when I thought something was nonsense, I would try to do what I thought a a good journalist should do, right? Which is essentially do some investigation work, talk to some people in the field, run experiments of my own if I possibly could, and then share, here's what Google says and here's what appears to be the case, right? And if what Google's saying is true, it's possible that we still got these results through some other way and maybe here's how, but it doesn't seem likely, right? And so, you know, and and then in a lot of these cases, it would be, years before you could truly prove that what Google said about whatever, you know, oh, well, we don't count nofollow links or something. And then you're like, hey, you have been counting nofollow links. yeah, you, you know, from certain places in certain ways, not as much as follow like blah, 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 whatever. Right. Or, uh, oh, no, we don't look at any uh, user and usage data in calculus. That's what your whole machine learning algorithm is based on. You lying liars. You know, <laughs> it's, it, it gets pretty frustrating to see example after example of that. It gets especially frustrating in my opinion, Seth. And look, I, we mentioned at the, at the start of this, I'm a couple of years out from the SEO field. So a lot of my complaints are sort of that leftover, you know, anger at the, at the systems and structures and especially at Google who's become one of, if not the most powerful company on earth. And they are still playing these silly games which hurt primarily hurt small and medium businesses. And I look, I think we all know, right? We can all look at economist data and see that one of the worst things for income inequality and political instability is uh, uh, a bad distribution of power in the economy to a few monopolies over all, a lot of small and medium businesses, right? What, we, what you want, what Americans want in their economy is lots of small and medium businesses that makes everything, you know, that makes America great, right? That makes our economy great and healthy and able to survive and strong and all these things. And what we're getting is Google and Facebook, Microsoft and Apple and a few others taking a larger and larger share. And that is a really bad thing. And so when I see Google, who I know the people at Google, I know that they know this. I know that they know that they should not be playing these games and doing these things. When I see them you know, violating antitrust law.
3: <laughs> well, look, we, we in historically and for most of our audience, you know, it takes a lot to go above the Fortune 500 companies that own some of the major. Um, directory brand. So they want the best possible result, but the directories are up there. Now with LSAs, I know this is post your time at Moz, but the LSAs are now, you know, a a second bite at the Apple where Google's trying to control more of the market, the GMBs. So talk to me a little bit about that. That's sort of the hot button topic in our space right now, the LSAs. You have any thoughts on
5: that? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, broadly speaking, um, Google is... Uh, essentially, recognizing that they have they have a challenge, um, a worldwide global growth challenge, right? So, the, the Wall Street, their investors, their stockholders expect them to grow at certain rates, and this is this is one of the problems, right? Once you get to be, you know, a hundred billion dollar plus company, and you already own your market, you have, you know, not, Google has outside of China ninety five percent of the global search market uh, around the world. And, and China is not really a market they can enter because the, the government in, in China sort of, um, at least when I was there, I don't know if this is still the case, Seth, but when I was in China, if you, uh, if you performed a search on Google, you get redirected to the Baidu results at the ISP level. So yeah, tough for Google to compete there, right? But uh, the, the reality is that since they have this global stranglehold on the internet, they, they can't create more users right? They can't create more people who are searching all the time. So they're, yes, they're trying to increase the number of searches. They're trying to increase the searcher satisfaction. They're trying to get people, you know, more and more addicted to doing more Google searches, which is fine. But in order to get the growth Wall Street wants, Google has to start entering all these other fields. So they see, oh, look, uh, okay, what are the biggest parts of the economy? All right. Uh, the financial field. Well, let's make uh, Google finance and Google credit cards and Google accounts. And let's work with all these banks and Hey, let's have a Google mortgage calculator. Oh, travel. All right. We're going to have Google flights and Google hotels and uh, Oh, uh, telecommunications and phones. All right. We're going to have Google Fi. And some of these products are great. I think Google Fi is one of Google's best innovations. I think it is one of their best products. I love it to death. Fantastic. Wonderful. I think in a lot of these other cases, what they're doing is essentially saying, hey, there used to be lots of opportunity for lots of people in the search results. Let's take that away. That's ours now. Video, video is a great example of this. You know, For years with Moz and Whiteboard Friday, we hosted with Vimeo, right? We put, we put our videos on our site. They ranked in Google. You got the little video snippet. What is it today? 90 plus percent of all videos that show up in Google's top 10 are YouTube. YouTube alone and that was a change a one day change one day in 2014 you know July something or other in in 2014 suddenly it went from you know 50% 40% YouTube to 90 plus percent that's not an algorithm change right that's a that's a corporate practice of hey we want more money engineers make it all YouTube <laughs> <laughs> right. right. I mean, the,
3: no, like the LSA, we didn't get enough out of the ads at the top. I mean, there, yep. there are reasons. And like the crazy part about law is you have a license. So yeah. the idea that you're verified, like, you know, if you're barred, it's going to be a verified user. You know, it's not like a locksmith where they put the, the locations in the middle of intersections. You know, there's, and there's plenty of spam. That pivots me to a question because I've asked this to a number of guests on the show and I haven't gotten a good answer. Maybe you'll have one. You know, Google did a pretty good job of combating spat, spam in organic search, but in local, they really haven't. No. Particularly in, in the legal space, it is yeah. rampant. What's what gives? What's going on here? They could do it. Yeah,
5: I, it's an interesting question, right? I think there's a um, there's a certain amount of. Uh, I think, a reasonable doubt that I have about the ability of Google's machine learning techniques to be incredibly pinpoint accurate at only filtering spam and nothing else. And that's because most of the spam and manipulation that happens in local world is uh, much more difficult to detect and pull the threads away from versus the spam and manipulation that happens in organic world of you know sort of link spam and comment spam and and these types of things right and, and paid links and all that kind of stuff why that is 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 a little bit tough to answer if i had to guess what i would say is because the spam in in maps and local is written by real people right? It's, it's, you know, reviews and it's coverage and it's, you know, um, uh, businesses that are created in a location where they don't actually exist. And Google's verification process is pretty good, but not perfect enough. And every time it gets a little bit better, spammers can still figure out ways to work around it, right? I think you are um, in the local world a lot like where we were before Google's or right around Google's Panda update. For for organic right in 2012, where essentially the um, the spam fighting systems and the search quality team have not caught up to all of the ways that one can manipulate, and so there's there's enough incentive and there's enough manipulation, and law is one area where because there's enough money per client, it pays right there's a return on investment. To go through, to jump through a ton of hoops, even if it only earns you whatever two or three new business, new clients a month. Right. Right. As opposed to, for example, like a restaurant. Right. It's it's not worth putting a spam it's listing. It's not out. worth it. Yeah. Right. It, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. You've got to have a very high ticket item, and so the law is one of those few places.
3: Gotcha. Um, taking you through today, and I want to—we'll get—we'll get to what what you're up to now. But I want to to get you there. Talking about today from the point of view of SEO, you know, with Bert and the future of content. Love to just thought you know your advice to to our to our viewers and listeners on just where you see content today, and any any uh, w- words of wisdom for those of us who are curating content for SEO-friendly sites.
5: Yeah, uh, my sense is so Google is getting much much better at. First off, weighting content more heavily in their algorithm. I think we can we can all sort of feel this, that uh, the content quality, and, and not quality alone, but the combination of quality and solves my problem, yep. solves the searcher's intent as comprehensively as possible, uh, those two things have risen in the ranking algorithms, weighting systems substantially. And I think that, that happens because Google has these deep learning systems where they can essentially... Um, you know, machine learn off of tons and tons of searcher data, right? So you and I go to Google, we search for something where we click some a result, we're unhappy, we click back to the search result, we choose something else. Google knows that was not the thing to rank. Maybe they should rank the thing that clearly solved our problem instead of the one that didn't. And, and over time, right, they get billions and billions of these data points every day. They're able to you know, segment that in every sort of uh, way possible. And now they can provide these great results. So as a result of that, you as a content creator have to be inside your searcher's head, right? You have to be able to answer their query better than anyone else. You have to, and one of the ways, to, right? One of the ways to do that is with content quality. One of the ways to do that is by predicting intent. What are they trying to accomplish? How can I help them accomplish that better? One of the ways to do that is to build a brand that people associate with having positively solved their problem, right? So if you are a recognizable brand in the search results, you are going to get far more clicks and people are going to feel like you did a better job than if you are an unrecognizable brand. So, you know, whatever, Seth sethandranscandybar.com might get, you know, maybe we go out there and we, we create a great candy bar and it tastes great And people love it, but, um, and and we get tons and tons of links to our website, but how many people have heard of Seth and Rand's candy bar versus Snickers or M&Ms or whatever, right? And so instead, you know, we're always hovering below them. And even if we're like, but our our candy bar tastes better, well, the brand association over the last hundred years, sorry, friends, it's going to take you a while, right? So brand is a huge way to stand out from the crowd as well. Those are the pieces of advice that I would be thinking about as a, as a marketer, a content creator, and, and strategist today.
3: You know, you've been pretty critical in some, some speeches over time about links in general, but, you know, love them or hate them in our world, they are still huge. Oh, yeah. Your thoughts on the state of it today, you know, for most people in our space, we're looking at you know, authoritative links, the days of spam links are gone. At the same time, the local links to be able to signal um, authority within a uh, local community to to sort of get that local love. Any words of wisdom that from your perspective, looking at it today from uh, from a link acquisition point of view? Uh,
5: let's see. The, the smartest and wisest people that I follow in the local space uh, are telling me that links continue to fall in importance in local and that... Uh, brand mentions, clarity of brand mentions, uh, are still on the rise. And that makes a lot of sense to me, right? I don't, I don't see any reason why, uh, what was the, the, there's a, there's a Japanese izakaya that I want to try here in Seattle. Well, for delivery, obviously, but um, since we're all in quarantine, uh, but, uh, uh, oh, Tanuki, that's what it is. It's called Tanuki. So, you know, I, if I am Google and I see a bunch of whatever it is, you know, the Seattle Times and the PI and The Stranger and you know Rand and Seth's Seattle blog writing about Tanuki Izakaya, and they don't link to the website, so what? Is that any less of an endorsement? Is that any no, it less of a reasonable? We've been
3: saying that for, for a decade. Exactly. And it-
5: exactly. And so what happens over time when you have a machine learning system? Is that rather than, right? It's not a team of engineers who sit around a table and say, well, let's make uh, links 24% of the rankings this week. That doesn't happen anymore. Not, not that, you know, that's a, a gross oversimplification of what happened in, you know, from the 1998 to 2012 period. But in the machine learning era, what happens instead is engineers feed data, right? Here's data in, and this is the result I want out. So, Google ranking system, what I want you to do is do your deep learning and figure out which results we should show at the top that will engage the highest number of searchers in the most uh, problem solving way. Um, for most you know for most queries that's that's how they think about it. In some quick cases, they're like screw everyone's happiness, put Google things at the top. <laughs> um, but regardless of that, Uh, In in local, especially, right, it's, hey, put Tanuki, Izakaya up at the top if that's the thing that will solve the most searchers' queries. Right. Right. And so in the case of uh, a learning system, you get algorithmic inputs that over time are better correlated with solving searchers' problems and ones that are worse correlated. Links over time have become a little bit worse correlated. Brand mentions, especially from what I'd call sort of you know, reputable news and media and listing sources, uh, and Google gets better and better at figuring out which ones are reputable and not, that really means something. You get written up in Eater. You get written up in Bon Appetit. The New York Times food section says this is Seattle's new hot place. It, you start to rise, and, and, and a lot of us can see this, right? If you follow, for example, you know, food world very closely. Uh, I've done this in like Portland, Oregon. And suddenly there's some hot, you know, hot new restaurant, you know, new celebrity chef or, or whatever it is, right? Like making something, and the New York Times writes about them, and then a bunch of places in Portland write about them. there's not a lot of link activity, but suddenly lots more people are searching for that restaurant. And the direct the direct traffic coming through. The direct traffic is coming in, the branded search is coming in, the the mentions are coming in, and all of those signals tell Google that that's the one. When someone searches for uh, steak restaurant, Portland, we should put, you know, Ox up there.
3: And, and not surprising, we're seeing that in the legal space. The The recent updates, what we've seen is people who have a TV presence, will end up with a bump that's that happened on the last one which would fit to this um at the same time for some of the micro terms and that's one of those areas if you go back to the spammier days the anchor text you know one of those things that many of us went as clean as we could be to make sure we didn't get near the bad world but some of this stuff still is working and it's one of those balancing tests where you want to do right by your client and you want to make sure that you're getting them every possible advantage without going over the line because there's a certain amount that you're not going to be in Bon Appetit every day. And so, and this is,
5: you know, I think this is the question, right? For a lot of digital agencies and in-house marketers and, and firms broadly, they have to think about it from a strategy perspective, right? So you play, you can play it both ways. You can play the, Hey, let's go right up to the line, but not walk over it on links and anchor text and all that. And simultaneously let's do a bunch of digital PR. Let's have a reason why, all the podcasts want me to be a guest on there. Let's do some pro bono legal work that'll get us a ton of coverage, right? In the right press and publication. Hey, no one is talking about this particular area of the law. How do we make that sexy and interesting to people who would write about that on the web and talk about it and share it? Uh, Okay, I got it. We're going to, whatever, make this a, a political, you know, talking point so that all the press that's covering the politics world, which is obsessed, right? They're going to start mentioning us, right? We're going to put out a report that blah, blah, blah. We have a new white paper. We did some research. We're going to contract with a, you know, statistician, blah, 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 blah. whatever it is, you can play both of those.
3: Right. And I I just smile because it's like, that's SEO. It's not surprising that the wizard of SEO is. Well,
5: and look, my, you know, my, my stepping back from the field means that I see it from a a broader perspective these days, right? SEO, SEO can still drive great traffic, right? Tons of people are still using Google. Is it the only place that you should be getting your traffic? Should you be putting all of your eggs in that one basket? I don't think so. No, absolutely. I don't think that's a good, I don't think that's a safe way to play anymore. I think, you know, 10 years ago, you could put all your eggs in the SEO basket and probably be totally fine because Google didn't look outside of their little world for that many signals. Nowadays, the better you do in social media and digital PR and email marketing and content marketing and podcast marketing and and video marketing and all these other places, right? All these other spaces, the more Google wants to rank you as well. And so you could be doing all the SEO things right And one of your competitors is sort of not paying that much attention, but they're doing a lot of digital PR, and they win. And you go, wait a minute, they're not doing the SEO stuff. Sorry, they're winning because Google wants to pay attention to a lot of stuff that is not what we consider classic SEO. Right.
3: Well, along those lines, and you talk about, this sort of combines the the different elements you talked about, what do you see the search results looking like in the future? Do you have any thoughts on, we've seen the LSAs layered in, but we're, you know, you're talking about don't put all your eggs in the SEO basket, where, where do you see this going?
5: Um, so I think Google has very clearly signaled that they, they want to solve searchers' problems as quickly as possible uh, with data that they show that does not necessarily lead to a click. Um, and so I think what you're going to see, right, what what Google's trying to play, they're, they're kind of on the knife edge of this right now. They are trying to play this game of let's grow the number of searches by having more and more people search more and more because they get their answers faster and faster. And so they they sort of, you know, get into this habit of coming back to Google again and again and again, and we're going to make that as easy as possible for them. And at the same time, we are going to siphon clicks away from anyone who is not an Alphabet owned company, right? So if you're not Google Maps and YouTube and Google Finance and Google Travel and Google Flights and Google Trips and Gmail and Google Calendar and Google Drive, and uh, <laughs> we could go on for the whole rest of the hour right? <laughs> listing Google's properties. But if you're not in that group, Google is essentially siphoning clicks away from you that they don't want to show your stuff as much at the top of the results. And so, you know, you can see this, I, I wrote about this on the, uh, on the Sparktoro blog, of course, the, the, that less than half of all Google searches now results in a click. And it, it has continued to drop on mobile. What's crazy is it stayed stable on desktop and because of the pandemic and everybody quarantining, not everybody, many people responsibly quarantining this year, uh, you see that desktop growth for the first time, right? For the first time in 10 years, desktop is growing again, mobile is shrinking. And so uh, the click-through rate has actually risen on Google this year. Next year? It's going to fall pretty precipitously again, right? We're all going to go back to to these devices, God, God willing.
3: Yes, and that look—that's sort of before we, we pivot to your your current venture. Um, looking at that, what what you know—that is a one significant COVID trend. Any other trends that you are seeing COVID related that people should either adjust for or take advantage of?
5: Yeah, I mean, gosh, so so, so many in digital marketing field. I think you know one to be aware of is. Um, Certainly, that there's a huge increase in um, what would I call that? Infotainment consumption. Absolutely, right. So TikTok's the the greatest example. Yeah, yeah, right. So um, today it was just announced uh, Reddit is now getting 52 million daily users. Wow, 52 million daily, just Reddit, right? And Reddit supposedly, I, I thought they only had about 300, 350 million users total. So the fact that they are now getting uh, comparable or maybe even greater than, I think maybe Twitter is 60 or 65 million, but comparable to Twitter, Reddit is is growing like crazy. We are all sitting on our phones, browsing through news and information and, and entertainment, right? Instagram, same thing. Facebook, same thing. Twitter, same thing. LinkedIn has risen, right? Tons more LinkedIn uh, content consumption, tons more... Um, Pocket content consumption. Hacker news is up. Uh, SparkToro trending is up. I, I don't know if you follow, you know, if you're mar- in the marketing space, we have this, this SparkToro trending page, which is kind of like hacker news, but for marketers. And, you know, we don't do any marketing or promotion of it. And yet it's risen from a few hundred people visiting every day to a thousand plus, 1500 plus. Now it drives a lot of traffic if you get on there. Well, so, so you. Yeah. So that, that trend in my opinion, is indicative of the behavior shift, right of, of millions and millions of uh, people around the world paying more and more attention to uh, infotainment types of content. Because of that, if you're a digital marketer and you can be in that sector, right, get into Google Discover, which is driving you know, huge amounts of traffic and Google News and, and get on all these other platforms you can drive a lot of traffic and brand recognition and email signups. And then, you know, as I think, um, hopefully, fingers crossed, right, this, this COVID situation gets much better with, you know, sort of a, um, uh, vaccines, a new administration, all those kinds of things. We, we should expect a recovery in a lot of these sectors that have been very harmed. And when that happens, if you have the email addresses of your customers, if you have their attention, if you've built brand with them, you're going to have a pretty good 2021.
3: That's that's awesome. Well, look, that that brings us right back to what your 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 current project. want to want to hear more about it, and uh, you know we've been following it since uh, since you announced, and want to hear what you, where, where it is now. Oh, cool.
5: Yeah, I appreciate that. Seth um, yeah. So when I so I left Moz, uh, what was that February 28th of 2018, and I responsibly I waited a whole month. I didn't start Spark Toro until March 1st. <laughs> Gave myself a lot of time off there, um, so uh, yeah. Started Spartoro. What was that? Two and a half years ago now, almost. And uh, the the idea behind it, right? The core of the idea was that I wanted to be able to research audiences' behaviors, right? Our, our customers, you know, a group of people that we're interested in research their behaviors without having to survey them. Right. essentially there's all this public data there's all these people using Twitter and Reddit and LinkedIn and Facebook and um, um, Instagram and YouTube etc and all of their data is out there right you can go find oh well here's Seth Price uh, on Twitter and here's his YouTube account and here's his Reddit account and here's his Facebook account and here's his Instagram account and, and he's got his bio in there and his job title and all the places that he's worked and he's got you know his interests and he's following all these sources and you can you can go do that, right? If you want to learn more about you or me, all our public data is out there, right? You just go, go, go wild. But doing that at scale is pretty ridiculous. So we, we saw in the early days of Spark Tour, we saw some genius marketing firms and, and in-house marketing companies specifically. And what they did is they got an, a list of all their customers' emails, right? And they took those emails, uploaded them to Clearbit or Full Contact, got a list of all their, the social accounts of all their customers, and then built crawlers to go crawl that information, extract it and put it into a giant database and then, you know, munge it and send their marketers data like, okay, our customers follow these Facebook pages, these Twitter accounts, these LinkedIn, these people on LinkedIn this on instagram here's the websites they share here's the podcasts they listen to here's the youtube channels they subscribe to blah 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 blah. all that data amazing you know how much work that is that's like you know you take two or three engineers out of your engineering team and you take a marketer and you take a product person and a growth team and you put them all together and you're like okay you have six months to go get me the answers to this when casey and i went well that's dumb we should just build that for the whole internet like, let's just build that for everybody so that you can go to SparkToro and say, I wanna find an, idiot, an audience that's interested in antitrust law, or I wanna find someone who describes themselves as an orthodontist, or I wanna find chemical engineers in the UK, or people who play the board game Dungeons and Dragons, or you know whatever it is. And I want to learn about what they pay attention to so that I can go do marketing to them in all those places and build my brand with them. And that's what SparkToro is. It's it's a super simple search, right? You go there and you say, you know, there's a there's a few different drop downs, but you could say, oh, my audience uses the hashtag clean energy. And you can find what media they read and what YouTube channels they subscribe to and which podcasts they listen to. You're, you, can up- you do what you said.
3: You're essentially yeah. somebody's in-house team, but done you know, so that you don't need to have your own 20 person team doing this.
5: Exactly. Exactly. And now you can bring data to those conversations. That I mean, Seth. I'm sure you've been part of these, especially on the agency side, right? Where you go in, you know, and there's a a CEO, right, or a board of executives, whatever the 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 partners at a legal firm, <laughs> and they're like, "I want you to get us in the Wall Street Journal." And you look at them and you're like, "Really? Is that is that how you're going to get new customers?" I, I golf with our customers every Sunday and they 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 read the Wall Street Journal. I don't know why they sound like Richard Nixon. But <laughs> but regardless, right, the, the, That conversation is really hard to have because you don't have in your back pocket a, all right, well, let's see here. Oh, yes, you said, you know, you want to reach whatever folks who are interested in in this particular topic or this subject or or this area of the law. Oh, well, good news, you know, 7% of them read, watch, follow, engage with the Wall Street Journal online. But I have better news. This niche publication over here, 28% of them engage with that. Do you think we should put four times the effort into that one, maybe?
3: That's awesome. And much more likelihood of happening. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can probably buy your way into that one, whereas, you know, you would have to network for years to get the other one.
5: It, that's Exactly right. You know, the PR game to play the to ROI get in the Wall Street Journal incredibly awesome versus you know find a podcast right you find a podcast that resonates with with an audience uh, amazing right, right. Uh, you pitch to be a guest you pitch to sponsor you you get an introduction right you network your way in so much easier such a and such a more uh, affinity likely audience for the kind of marketing you want to do
3: that's, that's awesome. You know, look, and it brings it back. You're saying, Hey, there's traffic outside of search. You're saying, you, you know, figure out those places that that's yeah, awesome. Right.
5: And, and when you figure out those places, the awesome thing is being a guest on that podcast or sponsoring it, uh, um, you know, getting into that niche publication, being in that white paper, being covered by that market research firm, uh, getting into that blog, uh, being covered by that, that, you know, local journalism publication, those things don't just drive direct traffic and branded search, which are great on their own. They also boost your Google rankings. Some of them, many of them will link to you. You'll get a link. Many of them, all of them will mention your brand. You get a brand mention. Almost all of them will drive some people to search for your company plus keyword, which will boost your rankings in the machine learning system. This is a win-win. That's,
3: that's awesome. Uh, let me take you back because when you did, when you built Moz, you started off and you know, you started off one day and said, I'm doing this and you, you produce great content, but as you did it, you built, you're not like the, to the face. You were one guy out there doing a whiteboard, but you, at the same time, b- built a team, built software, created all this different stuff as a talk to me as a business owner about some of the lessons learned in building uh, what you eventually sold.
5: Yeah. Uh so sad news is I, we did not sell it. Um so I I still own uh 17, 18 percent of 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 Moz's uh, outstanding shares. But um hopefully someday, fingers crossed, knock on wood, there'll be some sort of an exit there. But Moz is one of those frustrating, sort of stuck in the middle venture-backed stories, right? So we because we raise venture capital, which is a very particular asset class, um until there's a you know, sale for a very large number or manages to get growth up enough to go public or something like that. All that capital, all that stock is, is illiquid. Right. So I, I personally have, I don't know, maybe $500,000 in savings and, you know, a decent income from SparkToro Toro. Uh, I, I think I'm probably in the top 20% 25% of American earners, but not you know not top 10% or five or one, um, which I'm very grateful for. Like I don't you know I don't begrudge anything. But if you think building a $50 million a year revenue company will get you will make you rich, the answer is not if it's venture backed, my friends. <laughs> so so you know you you just have to uh, be aware of that. One of the things I, I discovered in addition to you know, sort of that challenging outcome and the, um, you know, venture-backed companies are essentially in this, either you go bust or you become a unicorn and anything in the middle doesn't really work for the model, right? So this time with Sparktoro, we raised money, but in a very different way from individual investors. In fact, a lot of folks like yourself, Seth, agency owners, other entrepreneurs, you know, people who had built, Small businesses, small medium businesses of their own, and generated a significant amount of wealth from that. You know, several millions of dollars. Uh, all of our investors are accredited, which means that they have more than a million dollars in net worth. And then they basically said, "Yeah, this Spark Toro idea sounds awesome. We'd love to put, you know, anywhere from twenty-five thousand to hundred thousand dollars in." We raised one point three million. Uh, which we have spent almost two thirds of. Uh, we just got profitable in September. We launched in April, um, and so had a very lucky year given COVID and all that. But uh, yeah, that that structure, I found it. I'm really excited to hopefully inspire more business owners to do that. Like for example, your 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 business is probably an LLC, correct? Yeah. So we're an LLC as well. We we can pay dividends to our investors. If SparkToro never sells and never gets bigger than a few million dollars in revenue a year, it doesn't matter. It can still be a huge success for our investors. Say you put in, Seth, uh, $100,000, right? So essentially the first 1.3 million that SparkToro makes, we pay back to investors like you. We'd we'd say like, hey, Seth, good news. Over the last couple of years, we made some money. Here's, Here's your money back. And now you keep owning the percent that you put in and every year you get dividends off of the profits, right? To the degree that we pay them out. And sure. then if we ever sell, you get that money too. So it's, well, it's sure. sort of a win-win and you don't have to be a unicorn. You know, we don't have to become Uber or Tesla or whatever in order to be a success. We can be a success at a small phase. That is probably the biggest takeaway for me is that the structure and the incentives of how the businesses started and capitalized influence everything about the company's behavior. So take me back. What would you have done in hindsight with with Moz? I think I wouldn't. I wouldn't have raised venture. I think Moz. You know, Moz. In my opinion, could have been an extremely successful, focused SEO software company uh, for the long term. I we probably needed that first round. The one point. What did we raise? One point one million in two thousand and seven. If, if we hadn't raised that, I don't think we could have gotten our software to where we wanted it to be. But after that, you know, I raised 18 million more, and then 10 million more after that. It's just frankly dumb. <laughs> we mostly wasted that money. Um, it made us inefficient, and and we tried to expand way beyond SEO. You know, I talked about it in the in Lost and Founder in the book, and, and have blogged about it too. Just a lot of mistakes that we made that um, that came from money, and you can see right that Moz. You know, Moz today, as compared to Moz like five years ago, you know, you go back five years and if you asked a thousand people in the SEO world, what software, what SEO software they used and recommended probably get 55 to 60% who would have said Moz today, maybe it's 20%, 25%.
3: It's part of the mosaic, but it's not the, it's not like that or nothing.
5: That that's exactly right. I, I think I think Maz's, you know, number of customers has gone from eh, in the twenty-five thousand range to the thirty thousand range, but the industry has tripled, right. quadrupled in size. Right. And that is mostly SEMrush and AA and Systrix and you know a few other you- companies. And you were in the right direction.
3: I mean, your local product was early to market, well-priced. I mean, I remember meeting you at some conference and it was coming out and I was like, you know, giddy, I wanted to be like the first guy to try it. And it seemed like it should be a market maker. And yet Yext seems to have sort of owned that.
5: Yeah. 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 I mean, I think Yext focused exclusively on that product and that space. They were very aggressive on the sales side. Moz was always very self-service. And I think frankly, the local product, like Moz tried to build an enterprise sales team. It spent a ton of the money that it made from the other parts of the business on the enterprise sales team, which never took off and failed. I think Moz is finally shutting that down now. But, you know, it was like a five-year experiment to do enterprise sales. that never worked. Um, And, yeah, there's just a lot of bad, bad, bad moves all around.
3: Well, look, I'm going to take you – try to stay away from the negative of that, (laughs) But when you were building a team, because you did have resources, so the good news is you had some, you had some, you know, capital which not everybody has uh, behind you. What are the, some of the things you think you did particularly well as far as structuring the team to build it? It may not have like the exit or, hmm. or the uh, whatever it is, the uh, yeah, lack of exit, <laughs> the, the uh, purgatory. But yeah. um, what, what, uh, you know, what are some of the things you're, you sort of think you did particularly right as far as using that venture money uh, strategically?
5: So I think the the two thousand and seven round was used incredibly efficiently like it was just um and maybe part of that is it was a smaller sum and so we were just smarter with it uh and and more responsible as opposed to you know you get 18 million dollars and you're like sure throw 50k at that sure throw 100k at that um when when we raised the 1.1 uh just like with spark toros 1.3 we have been very very capital efficient very very Conservative in our investment. The SparkToro team, Seth, is only two people. The Moz team back in 2007, I think we grew it to maybe eight or nine people. Kept it very tiny, right? We essentially had I had two software engineers, uh, eventually three that I recruited. They were um, two of them were were friends of my wife's, who she trusted, and she has a, a better read for people than than I do by by a long shot, especially when we were younger. Um, I think maybe I've become a little more cynical, judgy as I got older. But but um regardless, we recruited these these engineers. They, you know, built a product very efficiently on cloud services in the early days of cloud uh with Amazon Web Services, right? This was this was just as AWS was coming out and, and emerging. Uh and we were able to build a product that people thought would cost a hundred times as much, much as it did. You know, when I pitched investors, they were like, you can't crawl the web and build a link index for a million dollars. And I, I found a couple of engineers who were like, ah, okay. If we do this and this and this and this, I think we can do it. Right. And uh, we were very, very strategic in terms of testing and experimenting before we, we got there. Right, we validated the market. We knew that Yahoo Site Explorer and the Google Link command, this is before Google Search Console and Webmaster Tools existed. Uh, we knew that that data was hugely important to marketers. We had seen, you know, we could see the, the, the data. We, we talked to people at Yahoo who were like, oh yeah, we, you know, 10 million people a day are using Yahoo Site Explorer. We're like, okay, so if we build a better one of those, we, we can get, we can really get something. And, and Link Explorer, I think it was originally called LinkScape Uh, At Moz, when we launched that, it was the day Lehman Brothers collapsed. Literally the day Um, we were—I was in New York for a conference. I went downstairs from my hotel room. I'm like looking around. Every, you know, all the people in the hotel lobby are glued to these screens, and it was real creepy. I had no idea what was going on, but despite the financial crisis, SEO Moz, which is what it was called at the time, like it really took off because. We had validated the product. We had a huge marketing engine for our size, right? We had tons of people like yourself who were reading the blog and watching what we were doing and paying attention. We knew what they needed because we had built that audience and the product they wanted. When we got it to market, we were able to turn the corner to profitability uh, literally, I think it was a month and a half after launch, by November of 2008, after launching in, what was that, early October or late September? Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, that is quite a journey, uh, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, I'll bring it back to the positive, you know, what you did for many of us. Uh, you know, I got to sit next to your dad watching you present at the, at the SEO church in Philadelphia a number of years back. My, that's my
5: grandfather.
3: Your grandfather.
5: My grandfather, uh, Seymour. Yes.
3: Um, and, that you know, to, to watch your journey and you and helped so many of us uh, to get to where we are. So uh, mu- much gratitude uh, both for that and for coming on
5: today. So, uh, thank you so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed our chat. Very good. Thank you so much. You bet.
0: Hey, it's Becca here. I'm sure you've heard Jim and Tyson mention the Guild on the podcast and in the Facebook group. The Guild is this perfect mix of a community, group coaching, and a mastermind. Guild members get so many benefits, including weekly live events and discounts to all maximum lawyer events. Head over to MaximumLawyer.com forward slash the guild to check out all the benefits and watch a few testimonials from current members. So head to MaximumLawyer.com and click on the guild page to join us. Now, let's get back to the episode.
2: Hi, I'm Jay Ruane, one of the founders of FirmFlex and a practicing attorney for over 20 years. Anyone who knows me knows how my firm runs on the systems we create, and it has allowed us to flourish, even in tough times. I spent years and hundreds of thousands of dollars until I finally figured out a way to engage my audience and drive top-of-mind awareness with social media. And what did I do once I figured it all out? I built a system for it, and now you can put that system to work for you. You see, we took the hard part, creating the content and finding the images, and made it foolproof. Every day you will have curated social media topics to post designed to make your firm constantly remind your audience about your firm what you do, and how you can help. And the best part? You don't even need to hire a dedicated social media person to do this for you. In fact, you don't even need to hire anyone new. We designed the system to make it easy for you to delegate to your receptionist, assistant, or paralegal and have them execute solid social media for you in just five minutes a day. It's like having a content writer, researcher, and graphics designer at a fraction of the price it would cost to hire in-house. Sign up today for the social super system and start building your brand where your clients already are, on social media. Well, Seth, you did it. I mean, you crushed that interview. I got to say, I'm a little jealous because I wasn't able to actually be on the interview because as it's going, I'm thinking, oh, I'd like to ask that question. I'd like to ask. But then you asked the questions I was going to ask. I I mean, it was, uh, you know, uh, maybe you don't need me. Maybe I should just, you know, disappear and this could be the Seth show. But I got to tell you, man, what were your big takeaways uh, from your conversation with Rand?
3: You know, a lot of it was sort of an enjoyable sort of understanding of what was going on in his world at that time. For me, ironically, not what I thought. It was some of his lessons learned from business and the fact that, like, he took on money to build the software, but then when he took on crazy money to expand the program, he lost control and it didn't, they didn't use that money wisely. And I think that that is one of those things, like if you're going to get money, what is it there? It's not just money for the sake of getting money, but are you getting money in and are you putting it to use? so that, you know, the lesson learned for me is, you know, you need a certain amount to get over the hill to sort of get yourself up and going, whether it's developing software, putting your systems in place, but that if you take on too much, there are severe consequences. And I think he's sort of uh, become the, the volunteer poster child for that.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, you know, the interesting thing about me is that, you know, in the forums that we live in, there's a lot of talk about, you know, oh, should I buy this practice? Should I take on this partner? And while it's not direct one-to-one, there are corollaries that you can see in his. And of course, we talk about outside money coming into law. We talk about Arizona and how, you know, California may be the next to fall, uh, you know, and, 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 and the future is... You may be presented as a law firm owner with the opportunity to take outside money or have another firm invest in you or invest in another firm. And so what I think you really need to do is, is listen to Rand's story and identify that it's not always rosy and there are things that you need to consider outside of the strict dollars and cents. And if you're able to do that, then you can make educated moves. You can make moves that put you in a position to excel in the future. But I feel bad. I mean, I'm, I'm listening to this guy's story as a rock star, and, I, and I'm like, wow, I feel bad for that guy. And, and you know, he has a good life.
3: And his next venture will crush it, and he'll be fine. Yeah. So I, I, I have no doubt that he will navigate. It sounds like he is well on his way to, a, to another, uh, you know, double or triple, if not more. Um so you know it, it, he clearly has a great head on his shoulder' an innovative thought leader, and will will be fine. but uh, it is shocking that somebody who produced this much value for so many people is is sort of in the is is not excelled the way you would assume.
2: yeah, you know it's interesting you know it, it it's what what is interesting to me about lawyers who grow their law firms is that so often, That first job that you get out of law school kind of defines the rest of your career, and we see it. We see lawyers who are like, well, I got a job doing this, and so now that's the kind of lawyer I am for the next 50 years until I retire uh, to Del Boca Vista, right? Right. Uh, and then you see guys like Larry Kim with his word stream which is all pay-per-click advertising and now he's doing messenger bots uh, and you see Rand with Moz which is SEO and now you know you you start to see situations that we do have long lives and it may be that you want to offload your existing law firm and all of its systems and everything to start something totally new and that's okay and that's sort of frightening from a lawyer's perspective because you know you, you 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 keep the steady path, right? As a lawyer, we're trained, keep the steady path, don't try, don't take chances, that type of thing. But it's sort of inspiring that you know your story's never over. You can keep writing it, you know, you can start a new chapter and maybe that new chapter involves walking away from something that you've built. And it actually it's given me some pause, you know. I I love my firm, but maybe the best thing for me to do is plan to ex- exit you know, in two years and start at 50 with something totally new. I don't know. I don't know. But as we end the year, it's you know I'm going to have some more time to think about these things, and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Uh, and, and, and because I have the systems in my office, I have the freedom to be able to do that. And that's, and that's something that I want people to take away from it. Spend some time deep in thought about your business and not just in your business, not just on your business, but about your business and where you want to be. And so that's the message that I wanted to send to you, uh, this snowy Thursday here in Connecticut. But Seth, I think that's going to wrap up our show for today. Sound good. Sounds great. All right. So as we stand right now, we are still going to be live next Tuesday where we're going to talk about some more things as we end the year. So please join us next Tuesday on another edition of Maximum Growth Live. I am your host, Jay Ruane. He is Seth Price. Seth does SEO for law firms as well as runs one of the top law firms here on the East Coast. And I do social media marketing for lawyers uh, as well as run my law firm. And we are always available. Through the Maximum Lawyer podcast, through our own podcast, this show, uh, and all the shows that are part of Maximum Lawyer Media are a great opportunity for you to focus on your practice and do great things and really take yourself to the next level. So with that, Seth, I will say goodbye. Enjoy that warm weather. I have to go shovel. I've got uh, 12 or so inches of snow. I've been holding off for doing it all day. I let the kids get out there. But now, before it gets too dark, I'm going to go out and do my shoveling uh, now that the snow has stopped. So wish me luck. I hope I don't turn into a snowman. Godspeed. (laughs) As you walk around in shorts and a t-shirt, I'm sure you're very jealous that I'm going to be doing some shoveling for the next couple of hours. So have a great day, folks. We'll see you soon. We'll see you on Tuesday. Bye for now. I'm Jay. He's Seth. Have a great
1: weekend.